0: Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Academy Strength and Conditioning Coach at Arsenal Football Club, Powdy Roach. tuning in to this episode of the Pacey performance podcast so unlike other part twos that I've done over the last couple of weeks and months this part two comes within weeks of part one so there's not been a, a long delay between part one and two and that is because of the unbelievable response that both myself and Powdy got on got from part one so part two came about from the questions that were asked on Twitter on the back of Powdy's tweet asking for, asking for questions uh, on what listeners wanted to hear more about, wanted expansions on, given what he said in part one. So this episode is basically me facilitating a QA and a between Powdy and listeners via Twitter. So hopefully we give shout outs to all the people that were kind enough to put their questions online and um, I was hopefully able to deliver them in the, uh, in the way that they were intended. So, this episode is an excellent, another excellent episode with Powdy. And hopefully, like I say, I did justice to the people that wanted their questions asked. This will be a great episode for anyone that's working with youth uh, academy footballers, but also um, anyone that's working in professional sports. So, I'm sure you will love this episode with Powdy. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by the University of Notre Dame and Australian Catholic University, who are excited to host their second annual Human Performance Summit. This year's focus will be on moving past the barriers that limit the integration of performance teams. So the Human Performance Summit, the performance team puzzle, will be held in the beautiful University of Notre Dame campus on Friday, June the 21st and Saturday, June the 22nd. Rather than hosting individuals to speak on generic topics, there's a focus on bringing in performance teams to speak on how they operate through success and failure. So each one of these presentations will be followed by an intimate question and answer portion, and then tying everything together with a 90-minute practical session. It's something that I've spoke to loads of people about recently and people are finding less value in repeated presentations at conferences but more value in the conversations that go on the hallways. So both Friday and Saturday night they'll be hosting an event on campus with activities geared towards sharing an organic discussion. And it was these events last year that proved to be the highlight of the conference. So if you're interested in getting to know more about the conference, I've put a couple of links in the show notes, which will take you to the presenter list and more information on the conference itself. This episode of the Pacey Performance podcast is sponsored by iMeasureU. So, iMeasureU is used by leading biomechanist researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi limb inertial data in the field. So, iMeasureU recently released IMU Step, which is a dual sensor and app for lower limb load monitoring uh, and helps practitioners optimize return to play for running-based sports. So unlike GPS, AMU Step focuses on lower limb musculoskeletal load and works via two very small synchronized high frequency tibial one sensors which quantify three things. The intensity of each step an athlete takes, precise left and right lower limb asymmetry and cumulative tibial load. So iMeasureU is now part of Vicon and works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world. So if you want to get more information and know more about iMeasureU, head over to the website imeasureu.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at imeasureu. So without further ado, over to the episode with Powdy Roach. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast So this evening and delighted to welcome for a part two, Paulie Roach, who is Academy s coach at Arsenal Football Club. So welcome to the podcast for a part two, mate. Thank you. Thank you very much for having
1: me again and thanks to all the listeners for the uh, fantastic feedback and more importantly, the fantastic questions that they pose.
0: Absolutely. So normally it's like six months, 12 months, 18 months, sometimes two, three years between Episode. So, this is obviously a testament to part one, which was only a couple of weeks ago, that it was so good by popular demand. We are back on. And, like you say, thankfully, people have uh, put in the questions based on part one and have made my job horrendously easy because I've just left <laughs> them from Twitter and I'm going to fire them your way. So, if anyone wants an in depth overview of your background and stuff and your story, it's probably best to shoot over to episode 228, which was part one. But for this for the sake of this episode you just want to give us a quick overview of of your background just how you how you got your, uh, made your way to Arsenal
1: so yeah i've been at arsenal um, six seasons now three seasons i worked with the under nine under 16 program as the lead and in the past three seasons i'm now currently uh, heading up the program for the under 18s and under 23s uh, physical development prior to that i worked in irish rugby with munster rugby in the south of ireland um gained some incredible experience there and I suppose prior to that back in my university days working with every sport that I I could get my hands on really to get some experience so that's a little snapshot really.
0: Perfect, absolutely ideal. So diving straight into the first question I've kind of tried to put it in a a logical order so we're going to start off with a question that came in around strength and conditioning for the foundation phase so obviously the smaller um, younger footballers that you have at the club, do you just want to give us a bit of an overview of what that looks like and then we'll use that as a bit of a jumping off point to dive a little bit deeper?
1: Yes, I suppose um, for us the foundation phase is uh, the under-9s, under-12 boys um, who I suppose really begin their journey of athletic development with us uh, at a very low level, maybe two 15-minute or two 20-minute slots per week. Basically, our, our program is based around you know fun activities, gymnastics, primal movements, animal movements. Essentially, what we're trying to do at that at that stage is trying to negate early specialisation. Um, we're finding that we've got talented little footballers coming in who are, are selected by Arsenal, signed at under nine, um, because they see potential in that player. Um, but because of early specialisation, and not at our club in particular, but. Due to the demands of academy football, even at under nine, um, some of these boys are missing out on on other activities outside of uh, outside of school, outside of uh, football training. So a typical under nine might train for three times a week at Arsenal and then play a game on a Sunday. So there's not a whole lot of room for um, other sporting activities. We encourage multi sports. We're big advocates of multi sports, and Des Ryan, my boss, would definitely be driving that um, to parents and. But it's not always possible because of the size of London and kids doing extracurricular activities after school might not always be possible because they're traveling to Arsenal to train three nights a week. So in our sessions, we're trying to really build just a nice physical competency across across their development in a very fun way. So as I said, gymnastics, primal movements, animal movements, um, encouraging multi-sporting fun games within our, our little sessions. And they, they predictably look like there might be four groups of under, in an under nine session. and uh, We would have 15, 20 minutes with a small group of maybe eight to 10 boys while the other groups are doing a football activity. And and our activity might be based on something that is involved within the football practice. So for instance, uh, the coaches in Hale End, Perry, Ivan, Will and Ian would sit with the coaches prior to training and see what their intention for training was. Um, they might have a, a thing they want to Work on like pressing in defence or playing out from the back. So then we would try and mirror or copy those kind of movements so that it makes sense to the boy, um within our, our session, and along the way try and have a bit of fun and, and teach him just basic movements. I think I think we're not doing anything extra there that other people aren't doing. I've seen lots of fantastic stuff uh, from Jeremy Frisch and Iva Cassandra and, and the internet. So like we're not we're not trying to reinvent the wheel there. Um for me, uh you, boys can move. Young boys can move. We need to keep them moving. We lose the ability to move as we grow due to muscles and bones and tendons not, not growing together. So essentially, it's, it's small little rotations 15, 20 minutes uh, on the pitch, um, fun based games. Um, and we kind of just work on all sorts of activities there in a kind of a very loose fashion because trying to get an under 10 to concentrate and run in a straight line can be quite difficult. So we try to, uh, we try to make it as fun as possible. and make it as engaging as possible for for the young players.
0: Do you ever take the lads off-site to do different activities, get involved in different environments and different sports and stuff?
1: Sometimes um, the older boys certainly would. Yeah, The younger boys, as I said, um, we're asking the younger boys for a huge commitment to come to training. So to miss a training session to go off-site is sometimes difficult to do. Um, we have, however, tried to, we, we, on day release day, or sorry, on half-term weeks and stuff, we tried to play a little bit of badminton in, in their sessions, or we might play rounders. or uh, We've had a hip-hop dance teacher come in and teach some dance, which was, which was very interesting, and um, just try and bring in a bit of fun to their normal, normal training. Um, we would like to take them off-site a bit more. Um, and that's something we are actually looking at. Uh, we, when we were designing our new Hale in facility um, four years ago, Des was looking at a kind of a playground area um, with monkey bars, soft play, climbing ropes, uh, fisherman's nets, etc. So that's something we are looking at maybe uh, implementing going
0: forward. Excellent. So just taking that question on that came in on Twitter to the next level to that. Um, What's the next phase? It development phase, twelve plus. Yeah. So so what? And so just give us an overview of what how that kind of progresses into the twelve to sixteen guys, boys. Yeah.
1: So once they turn twelve, they start. They will be training with us three times per week, and they play at the weekends. Um, but now they also get a half day release from school. So for one half day per week, they would come out for school. We'd feed them lunch. Uh, they might go to school in the morning, but they'd come out in the afternoon, we'd feed them lunch, and then they'd have maybe two football sessions and an athletic development session. Now, with the under-12s, now we're starting to introduce them into a gym environment. Now, I'm not seeing a load of barbell or heavy weights or stuff. It basically, it would be movement patterns within a gym setting, where now they're getting comfortable with a med ball, they're getting comfortable with a broomstick, mini band, etc., in the gym environment. And it's actually been really engaging from those young boys because the 12s in particular are fascinated by what's around them. It's not football. It's a little bit different. Um, So, yeah. And then at that level, they're starting to learn um, movements that relate to the Olympic lifting, to the big compound movements we would use at an earlier age, um, low-level plyometrics, which I think is very important for the young boy to develop his tendons and ligaments, which sometimes is overlooked for the growing athlete. And all those kind of activities we were able to do because we have more contact time. We might have a half an hour or 45 minutes with them in that session. And then from 13s up to 16s, they come out for a full day from school where their um, education is taken care of on site. They'll have breakfast, lunch and some snacks with us. So it's really, really, really solid contact time with them. As an SSE coach, you'd get a session in the morning with them. You'd get a warm-up pre-football session one and you might get another warm-up pre-session or football session two. So you could have up to three contacts with that boy that day. And now at under thirteen to under sixteen, they're starting to get their own little individualized programme. And when I say individualized, I'm not talking um really nuts and bolts, periodized, you know, linear progression program. It'll be more corrective exercise based and movement based around their needs. From from under thirteen up you're starting to enter peak high velocity. You're starting to get that adolescent awkwardness and growth related stuff. So, we really monitor that very closely. So, their program, some boy might be doing a whole load of mobility, stability type exercises, while maybe uh, a boy whose growth is not affecting him might be doing more compound type exercises within the same session. So, they get their own little individual plan. And it's not to individualize, it's to, well, it is, it's, it is to individualize their corrective needs, but it's to give them ownership. Here's your plan, you're an Arsenal player. This is your athletic development plan. You take care of this. You fill in your your numbers. You tick the boxes. Your name is on it. Your picture's on it. And that kind of just gets them now engrossed into what strength and conditioning is all about, really. Um, And that will work straight from 13s, 14s, 15s, 16s, um, where they come out for a full day from school, uh, for education, etc.
0: So in that phase, where does play fit in? Is it is this a case where you can you can go off site and get the lads get the boys involved in other things?
1: Yeah, now that, that we, you do? yeah, now that you exactly now that you have the full day. Um, as I said, we brought in the hip hop dance teacher for the uh, 15s and sixteens. Uh, at the time, for logistical reasons, with London being so massive, <laughs> um, we we got all the boys to one place, i.e., our site, and we brought the teacher in. We just found it better. Um, yeah, and we're looking at going forward. We're, we're hoping to take them off site more. Um, they. Some of the younger boys last year went went camping and went hiking. And uh, it was a kind of team building exercise and to see how they behaved on a bus together and overnight and how it worked. And it was, it was Apparently, it was a fantastic experience for all involved um, because I don't think kids get a chance to do that now. Um, skills that we would have had growing up and certainly the multi sport skills, we, we try to, at every age, we try to, to add it in. Um, I, I Back when I was with the under 15s and 16s, on a day release warm up, I might play Gaelic football, teach them catch pass, kick pass, kick catch. Rugby was brought in to to some horrified eyes from coaches. Um, <laughs> just touch rugby, teach them how to, to spin pass, teaching them how to throw a line out because we've got some athletic, very athletic kids that could be you know fantastic athletes in other sports if it didn't work out here. So, um, we we that takes great understanding from the coach because even at 16, 15, 14. The, the football coaches, you know, they have a job on developing skill, and it's a high skill sport. So, the the pressure is always there on them to make sure they get enough skill work in. So, we have to be very careful how we take from that. But, um, we're slowly, uh, slowly introducing some fun there. Even with the under 18s, two weeks ago, we we played rounders in a warm up just to just to get a little bit of banter going and. Something a little bit different, because they can be they're very diligent in their programs, but it can be also a bit monotonous, so you know I counted throughout a season uh, in an under eighteen season, I could do possibly one hundred and sixty warm ups with them, so you're looking at trying to keep them
0: engaged as well as myself along the way of course, absolutely. So moving on to the second question that came in from a good friend of mine, Luke Jenkinson, who's at Derby County. And this fits in with something that's been announced today, which was your, I think it was today, your talk at Child to Champion um, down in Gloucester, I believe, in in the summer. And this is around Olympic lifting. And I just wanted to get your view, and not necessarily your view, but how you implement Olympic lifting at Arsenal in terms of programming and the classic uh, argument that, it requires a real time investment. So, what's what's your views on Olympic lifting? How it how it fits in at Arsenal?
1: So, um, Olympic lifting is a big part of our uh, pathway document. It's in our exercise index. It's in our our document. Um, or sorry, our, our our pathway document, which is an organic document which moves according to how our our players are developing. But yeah, it is in there. It's a big part of uh, our athletic development program. Um, I believe Olympic lifting for me. Um, is worth time investment. Um, and the time investment, uh, when I say we Olympic lifts, like our young boys might only look at a snatch activity or clean activity for 10 to 15 minutes once or twice a week. So we're not actually putting a huge amount of time into that. It's one lift. It's one exercise. But for me, I think it's, it's really, really worthwhile because you're looking at, for instance, performing a power clean with a decent load for a young boy. You're looking at acceleration, deceleration dynamic stability, mobility, and for me, total athleticism. Um, As I mentioned in the previous podcast, for me, if you can overhead squat, uh, you're looking at a good uh, functional athlete. If you can overhead squat, ass to grass, uh, whether it's with a dowel or a light barbell, getting ready to learn the power snatch or, or, or full snatch. For me, you're looking at really quality mobility across the ankle, knee, hip. So... For instance, for the snatch, you need dynamic mobility in your ankle. You need stability in your knees. You need lumbar stability, hip mobility, thoracic stability, and thoracic mobility. So I think it's it's worth the time investment. What we do generally is, we we also understand it's not for every athlete. Um, it's not for every athlete. I have one particular boy who's got very long levers, uh, a small body, small torso, long shin bone, long... long um, Arm bones. is just a rack position, doesn't suit him. Overhead position, you can't catch the barbell wide enough to, to get it into a nice position to, to hit the right spots in the snatch. So he does load of jumps, he does plyometrics, he does other activities. Um, but for me, if, if you have the patience and if you have the time, it's well worth the investment. How we teach it, we start at, at under 12 with basic movements. Boys don't even know they're doing it. Overhead squats, front squats with a dowel, um, if you're doing hip hinge activities like an RDL or a deadlift, then you're already looking at a decent pull position or you're looking at teaching them to pull a position. And then it's just taking the time to do a little bit of skill work uh, and, and invest that time as they're growing up early on in your sessions to, to start putting it all together. And for me, that starts even at 12, 13, 14, 15. And like at 12, 13, 14, 15, we're not looking at performance. We're looking at physical literacy. So I think time should be spent on that if the coach is comfortable teaching it. And I think that's why sometimes um, people are not too keen on doing it because it is complex. Um, there can be lots of coaching cues. But I find if you break it down, uh, it, it can work quite well. So my philosophy, my personal philosophy, my colleagues at the club can be slightly different. Um, some of the, the, the Sam and older who work with the under 20 would do lots of hang work, um, hang pulls. Uh, pull some blocks because they want to get rate of force development in that power position whereas myself with the younger boys I want to give them a bigger physical literacy quality so I would do work from the floor and from hang. Generally with the young players I'll start with a top-down approach. Now there's different arguments as to how you teach this do you go bottom up top down just from my experience and particularly working in rugby kind of taught me this and there was actually Liam Hennessy was pointing this out to me very early on was that for the older rugby player or a contact sport where there's shoulder issues, like even even basketball or volleyball, netball, where you're getting people with long levers, um, joints that are exposed all the time. There could be you know, scar tissue in there from injuries and stuff. Sometimes the bottom-up approach works better so that they're at least getting to learn um, an activity that involves triple extension and a pull. Maybe not the catch. The catch might not sue someone with shoulder reconstruction, etc., But for the young boys, we like to start from the top down. So you're learning, for instance, if I'm learning the the snatch, I'm learning overhead squat, snatch balance, uh, dead hang snatch, hang snatch, power snatch, full snatch. So for me, you're learning loads of lovely little exercises there. And along the way, you'll find the one that the boy is very good at. And you won't hammer him to get to a full squat snatch position because we're not coaching weightlifters. Um, But we have a very athletic population, and I think you should give them the tools and invest the time to teach them uh, the Olympic lifts, because for me, it's a real athletic exercise where they get a huge bang for their buck and from getting feedback from the players, which I think coaches don't often do, um, I'm finding my boys really enjoy doing them.
0: I'd written down there, is the fact that it is a challenge for coach and athlete – just that within itself, does that make it worthwhile? Like you say, the, the the lads, the kids love a challenge. They have to figure it out. It's a movement problem, just like anything else that you would prescribe. And like the, the animal movements, the flow movements that you mentioned for the younger boys, this is just another movement they have to figure out. So with with that challenge, does that make it worth it within itself?
1: I think that's a very that's a great point, Rob. I I think that is a fantastic point. Um, for me you're spot on there. It's it's a challenge. Um, if we're asking them to do cartwheels and gymnastics, if we're asking them to run at 100% and suddenly stop and change direction, that's a physical challenge. For me, the snatching clean are easier than that for these young boys. And actually, if you, if you see some of these young boys and the, the level of skill they exert on the pitch and, and what they can do with a football, what they can do with their body to evade an opponent and shift uh, body weight this way and then change direction that way. It's incredible. So for me, a clean and snatch is a very, for, very simple exercise uh, for them to learn because they have, we forget, young players are mobile and have mobility across most of their joints. When they start growing, yes, they lose some of that and we have to correct that. But I think like for an adult to learn a snatch is very, very difficult. For um, a young player, it's another primal movement that I think – they, they will relish and enjoy and it builds on your program so in our program we want a back squat we want a front squat we want a pull we want a hip hinge all those things are broken down uh, or put together will create a snatch and a clean um so for me to i think the athleticism and, and the enjoyment from doing them um to see one of my under 18s today at 62 body weight power clean 67.5 this little skinny boy and moving that weight Really quickly, racking it on his shoulders and the achievement of racking on his shoulders when he hasn't done that weight before. Um, he was buzzing, I was buzzing, um, and he felt alive and, and I suppose, potentiated uh, before training. So it is worth the investment. Uh, for me, it is. Um, I know there's loads of arguments against it, um, loads of arguments about just doing the pulls instead of the full lifts. But for me, for the young player, the full lifts are, are just something that
0: I find they find easy. So you mentioned there about getting feedback from the players which coaches don't often do. I mean, it may be just a repeat of what you've just said, but what what feedback have you had from the players when it comes to Olympic lifting?
1: So most of the boys that I've spoken to, something I've done really, uh, (laughs) it was a a guy who started working with me at the under-18s recently, Dominic, um, when he he came in early on uh, when he took over his group of players with the under-18s with me. He gave them a sheet and asked them what exercise they like, what exercise they don't like, so he could build their programs. Because I think as coaches, certainly I am guilty of, oh, well, I'm the expert here. I know exactly what that boy needs to build up his physical profile. But sometimes we forget what they actually like. They're kids as well. Even an under-18 is a kid. So the feedback I was getting, power snatch, they love. Uh, Power cleans, they love. um. I've tried full squat clean full power a full snatch with some of the boys. It's just a little bit too much. I think the timing, the bravery needed to get under a full snatch. Um they weren't really having um, I felt I felt they, they felt uncomfortable with it. So now we, we do our power movements and we're getting our, our bang for buck there. So the feedback has been very positive from, from the boys. But then again they've been doing this now for two or three seasons at least. Um they see the carryover to performance measures. Um and we're seeing it in our testing. And I know that's only one component of our program. But um, I'll leave it in there. I'll leave it in there as long as I can. But I, I do phase it in and out throughout the year. So for the last month, they haven't been doing any Olympic lifts. We've been doing more velocity-based training with uh, loaded barbells and stuff just for change, change of scenery, really. And they're already asking me, going, when are we going back to our cleans? <laughs> <So> <laughs> it's, um it's interesting, yeah. Some boys really, really like, really like it, yeah.
0: Excellent. So moving on to question number three, and this involves something we've discussed a little bit and you've touched on already, but individualization of training. And it came in, um, to paraphrase, are we slowing down progress by individualizing too much? That was a great question from Lassie. (laughs) Uh, Yes, from Lassie, yeah.
1: Yeah, who I've met, uh, had the the pleasure of meeting here in London when he he comes over to do his master's degree. Um, um, Yeah, he's working in professional ice hockey, fantastic guy very insightful ex professional player yeah it was very interesting to chat to him um for me individualization um, first of all we have to look at what is individualization excuse me. for me individualization starts which are corrective in your pre prehab program that's for me has to be individualized based on that player's physical uh, makeup um, then your performance based measures will will kind of outline where their program should go, whether it's strength, power, speed, hypertrophy. Um, But for me, individualization is really the exercises that are suitable to that player to get what you want. Um, So when I talk about individualizations, our individualization programs are generally, they could be very similar for two boys, but sets, reps, or movement pattern might be just slightly different um, based on their physical makeup and their needs. For instance, uh, that boy I was talking about who cleaned sixty-seven yesterday—he's six foot one, sixty-two or three kilos. He's got a shin bone longer than myself. He's not built, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not lying. <laughs> he, It's—he's not built for squatting. It, it just—the poor boy just—he wants to, and that was one of his feedback to me. I want to squat. So I was like, you are squatting, but we do split leg squats, rear foot elevator split squats. We do hex bar deadlifts. We do lunges we do all sorts of other knee and hip dominant exercises that his mate beside him might be back squatting so there's your individualization within the same setting so the goal might be strength for player a and player B but and you might want a knee dominant exercise it's the individualization is picking that exercise that boy is proficient in and competent in and that's for me the individualization and I think lassie has a point he's right that is, is it is a is it hindering progress it can be. Because are we overthinking our programs um, and making them too, I suppose, trying to make them too, too progressive? We, you forget People forget with the youth player, the young player, to see any real change in connective tissue, muscle quality, um, nervous system activation. You're looking at four to six weeks. So if your program isn't longer than four to six weeks, then have you helped make an adaptation? I don't think you have. So yes, individualization can be detrimental to other markers if we're going too in-depth and trying to really isolate too many exercises that maybe we can just do in a small block with that
0: player. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with help Help you enjoy part one. So, in part two, we discuss all things speed training, we discuss velocity based training, and also internal and external load monitoring at Arsenal. And to finish us off, the biggest challenges faced as um, new graduates coming out of university to get into the industry. So, really interesting take there to finish us off from Powdy. So just before we do get into part two, I want to say a big thanks to Black Box Fitness for sponsoring this episode today. So Black Box are a performance gym manufacturer based in Belfast in Northern Ireland. Now they are starting to do projects all over the world from Australia to Dubai to the UK obviously and in their home country in Ireland, Northern Ireland. So if you are looking for extra bits to add onto your gym, whether it be barbells, plates, um, new racks, whatever it may be, or if you're looking for a complete gym fit out, make sure you have a little look on Black Box Fitness. So they can be found online at blkboxfitness.com but also check out their Instagram at blkboxfitness where they put a lot of their projects, ongoing projects and finished projects on there for you to see and see the quality of their work. So make sure you check them out. Also big thanks to Hawking Dynamics for also sponsoring this episode today. So Hawking Dynamics offer the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want, so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you are able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. Head over to their website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can I mean, you can also schedule a demo and follow them on Twitter at hawkingdynamics. So we'll move on to speed, and this comes from Neil Scanlon, and I suppose we'll frame it initially as the structure of how where speed training fits into the week for your for the guys that you're working with the academy. And then we'll look at the focus and then planning and programming. But where does that where does speed training fit in the week or in the month? Uh,
1: generally, we have for the older boys, 18s, uh, well, actually from 15s, 16s up, we would have a dedicated speed session and agility session, change direction sh- session once per week. So that's two sessions of dedicated speed agility work once a week. The 18s, would, uh, we play on Saturday. So... Generally on Tuesday, that would be their big work day. So we do uh, max effort speed um, for some ham- hamstring, well for speed development and hamstring injury prevention. Uh, they would do speed mechanics, max speed, and they would do high speed running. And then on a Thursday, we would do change of direction type uh, agility type activities to give them some uh, some quality movement there. And that's throughout the year. That's from day one really um, across the whole year, which is forty seven weeks. Now, for me, and this is a very interesting, a very interesting topic, for me, speed is, speed is trained every day uh, in my eyes. Um, every time you warm a player up, you should have some sort of maximum effort reaction or maximum effort acceleration within that warm-up, um, getting ready for football training or whatever your sport is, because it, essentially you're, they're going out to sprint anyway. Um, so on a Monday, even though it's a very light session, in our warm-up, we might look at some speed mechanics, some acceleration mechanics or or even just look at different uh, starting positions and, and coach that. Um, and I would lo- I personally like to put in some sort of race, whether it's for four or five reps in every single warm-up I do, even on match day, um, to get the boys reactive and get them, as I said, thinking quickly or moving quickly. And this is another part of my philosophy, and it's something I tell all the, the boys I coach, whether it's 9s, 10s, or 18s, 23s, Speed isn't always about the fastest person. Speed is about thinking quickly or seeing that movement or being in a better position than the other player. <laughs> uh, and that's why I tried to set up drills in my sessions that allow a slow player to race a quick player. When you put a turn in it or a change of direction or another activity, the fast player then might struggle to slow down and change direction, whereas a slower player can catch him there. And it's actually very interesting to watch that in, in reality.
0: So with, obviously, in your warm-up sessions, in your speed sessions, you're probably going to have a, quite a large group of lads. Yeah, generally how much,
1: 22 lads, yeah.
0: Yeah, so how much coaching can you actually do, or is it a matter of designing that session so the lads get the exposure that you want, not necessarily the in-depth coaching that they may get in, in a one-to-one or small group session?
1: That's that's a very good question, and I've actually off the back of the other the last podcast, I've got quite a few emails as regards, you know, Paul, you have a magnificent facilities, you have all this staff, you've everything, but how do you, you know, I'm living in a rural area in England, coaching my local team, how can I do speed or how can I do fitness on the pitch with twenty guys? Well, that is a very good question. For me, you're not creating hundred meter or four hundred meter Olympic runners. You're not creating someone who has to be very quick in a straight line, um, with beautiful efficient technique. So. I also think you shouldn't just set up a drill and let the, the, the drill run and hope that you get what you need out of the drill. That's the, the other end. For me, you're teaching mechanics all the time in the warm-up, uh, whether that's toe-up as they're doing high knees or to strike the ground away underneath you. And you're just barking these commands as the boys move through. I try to keep the boys in two groups, either two single files facing me all the time so that I can see each boy passing me and give, um, and then as we go back after a number of reps, you give a little bit of feedback. And I'm doing that every day, so I think they pick it up. Uh, two might pick it up today, four might pick it up today, tomorrow eight might pick it up. So that's ongoing, um, and that's a very good question because generally you will have large groups. Um, then once you're giving those coaching cues, then there needs to be an activity like an acceleration or something that has intent for them to move quickly. Uh, if you're asking them to give a maximum effort on their own, just run out there as quick as you can, you're going to get boys leaving a little bit in the tank. So I always give some sort of a stimulus, um, whether it's a whistle or you you react to the other player who goes first, um, to get intent. Because ultimately, to get faster, yes, you need good mechanics, you need strength, power, mobility, stability, force production, but you have to run fast regularly. For me, you have to expose yourself to run fast and what I try to do is put the fast players with the slow players, um, which might sound ridiculous, but I'm trying to get engaged, the boy who's slower, to chase the fastest guy. Um, and that changes up then, because obviously the fastest guy needs to be challenged as well. But that's generally how
0: I would run a, a warm-up or a speed session. Do you have targets for these guys, for the the boys and the, the lads in the younger age groups? They have to hit a percentage of max velocity X number of times per week in your sessions or via GPS or whatever metrics yes, you're
1: for looking the, at? For the under-18s under and under-23s, we, we're very fortunate. Um, we've got live GPS, um, which is fantastic because it's there in your hand or it's in my colleague's hand standing with me, and you know if he's close to his percentage of his max speed or not. So over, over time, over building up our speed sessions over the pre-season and into the season – we will get a new max speed for the boy that's that's his 100%. And then we're looking for three, four, five reps within 90% of that um, once per week as an exposure generally. And we're finding that seems to be enough for the, the particularly the under-18 boys to get our speed development um, and aid towards max velocity, but also having enough exposure but not too much exposure that uh, we're, we're preventing those hamstring injuries related with high-speed running. so We're very lucky that we have live GPS. and The live GPS just gives you intent as well. The boys can't hide. Um, and they're actually, they're young boys, are competitive, so they're even starting to question each other's max speeds when they come back. And and, and we teach every, to tell every boy and trying to educate every boy that we're not looking for the fastest guy on the day, we're looking for the guy who's trying to improve and the guy who's close
0: to his max. So that, yeah, we're very lucky that way. Perfect. So moving on to a question from Ben Sayers on velocity-based training. And this is, you may have mentioned this earlier on, actually. What's your thoughts on VBT and do you use it at the academy or not?
1: That's a very interesting question, yeah. Um, My thoughts on velocity-based training, very, very useful. Um, I've used a variation of it in the past when I was in Irish rugby, more based on, I suppose, speed strength training, speed strength diagnostics with Carmelo Bosco protocols. And the old uh, Fitcher Dine, the Tendo unit with the old temperamental string. Um, <laughs> the little handheld readout, yeah, I use that quite a bit. So uh, velocity-based training is a new term to me, uh, but not really a new concept. Um, we do use it in the academy, particularly with the older boys. My, my colleague, Noel and Sam, um, use, would use it extensively with the, the under 20 trees boys. Uh, not all year round, but in, in phases. Uh, for me, it is very, very useful if you have the tools to to implement it. But first of all, you have to have the tools, and I'm not just talking about the the hardware and software, I'm talking about the athlete. Um, For me, competency is key, that a boy is proficient in an exercise and reaches a certain level of strength or ability before you start measuring speed and velocity of a bar or before you set targets for that player. And that for me is key, that he's able to reach a certain level first. then it's very useful to really measure intent and effort. Um, is the boy lifting to his ability? Uh, but more importantly, for me, for the younger player, because speed or velocity-based training is very, very useful. But our strength and power work we're doing in the gym that's secondary to our pitch performance. It underpins our pitch performance. But our boys, some of our young boys, can cover 35, 40 kilometers a week. Sometimes can play two ninety minutes a game, uh, games a week. So if I'm Prescribing loading for them on a Tuesday and they're not hitting it, and I'm getting frustrated and they're getting frustrated, then it's a real problem. So, for me, there it has a real, real value for kind of auto regulation to adjust your loadings and your speeds for fatigue. And I think there, then it is a very useful tool. Um, but again, once the skill has been built up, uh, I'm starting to use the gym aware now. We're lucky that we got some gym awares, and it's a very, very cool tool. And um, now that the boys can say clean efficiently not perfectly but efficiently and snatch efficiently and squat correctly and they're getting nice little loads through there like as i said that boy yesterday doing 67.5 um that looked ugly um but i wasn't going to tell him that because it was a great achievement now now i can go back three or four kilos on that i'll go back 10 percent, and i can put my tendo on it and go okay i want you to move at 0.8 meters per second and start adjusting the load and now he's focused on quality movement and acceleration which is a very useful tool um we're not using it extensively but we have used it intermittently uh, i suppose is the, the real
0: reality how young would you go on that type of technology with, um, in, um, we, have used,
1: we have used we have used Jim aware with the 16s and 15s um more as a as i said as a tool to create intent we're, we're not measuring we're not tracking uh, peak power or peak velocity, but what we're what we're looking at is okay. This is what a clean should look like. This is what the speed should look like, or this is what uh, a, 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 low, a jump should look like: um, squat jump or counter movement jump with a dowel or a barbell. And you're giving a boy intent. You're giving him a bit of competition. Kids love numbers, so we're starting to use it. Um, you know, Ivan and Perry and the boys have been using it with the 15s and 16s as a kind of a more of a fun tool and a competitive tool to create intent and intensity rather than actually you know, measuring and pro quite young players um, Rob Suker who's now at Man City when he was working with us would have uh, speed strength profile. all his under 16s using it and uh, he done a fantastic project on that and actually he was at the stage where he was programming enough that which was a great place to be so it's um, it's it's in there intermittently
0: Excellent I think that's probably we'll finish there on the VBT stuff I think that's probably satisfied hopefully satisfied ben and his question oh, yeah hopefully, hopefully I, I hope that didn't sound obviously i too loose
1: but it's uh, no 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 it's no, fine mate yeah, I, think, I think people might think um with all the tools we have well, why wouldn't we use this on a regular basis well as i said it comes down to the my job is to create efficient uh, athletes who are healthy um and that's one tool that can help us develop speed and power and strength in the long term uh, but only after they've earned the right to really look at it
0: cool so we've we've chatted about um, a little bit of external load monitoring that you've got going on. This this next question comes from Connor Campwell uh, around internal and external load monitoring at the in the academy. Obviously, you've chatted about live GPS, but is there anything else that you guys are doing in terms of monitoring that may help you as an SNC coach?
1: So we look at obviously session RPE, um, which is probably the oldest one out there. We still rely heavily on that to give us a, a perceived measure of. Uh, session intensity—that's taken for every session, uh, gym-based, pitch-based, speed-based, etc. Um, even what's in your, rehab, we, what's the
0: process for that, Powdy? As so as log- logistically.
1: Oh, so as they are coming off the pitch, as I take their GPS units off, um, um, we have a data scientist Nav, and he'll be taking the GPS unit off, and he'll also take a session RPE for the for the total session. Now, for me, experience team has taught me that session inter-session RPE. Has far more value, but just logistically, it's very, very difficult to do. Um, I, I don't know anyone who's nailed that unless you've got a data scientist who's going around annoying the players between water breaks. Um, it's a very difficult thing to do, but it is probably would be best practice. So we do session RPE. Uh, we work a little bit. on We've got our heart rate, obviously, um, which is kind of hard to track in the growing athlete. Uh, I had this conversation with Dr. Greg Half, funny enough, about tracking heart rate for. Yeah, non-mature adolescents and it's um, it's a difficult one because heart rate changes so quickly based on muscle tissue and muscle mass, and a, a growing boy's um, hormone profile and and heart rate is changing rapidly. So it's kind of hard to to really track anything there. But we, we we track it with the older boys. Um, we're we are looking at first beat going forward. Um, the first team, Darren Burgess, they use first beat for uh, a lot of their monitoring and stuff for internal measures, but. At the minute, we're just using heart rate, session RPE, GPS, and
0: um, yeah, that's that's pretty much it. We chatted about before we started recording was the um, the conference you guys had last week at the club, and we talked about the involvement of the guys at Headspace, um, mindfulness, et cetera. Is there anything that on that front that you do at the academy? I know this is moving away from Connor's initial question about internal external load, but I think it may be nice to hear... Uh, what you guys have got going on in in terms of the mindfulness and meditation stuff
1: yeah so we have a we have a link with, uh, with that guy at the minute and um, our psychologist Kate is running a study with our older players the under 23s so uh, two times per week um when they come in straight into training get changed they come up and they, they have a mindfulness session which is run by Kate for 10 to 15 minutes and with that they've all got a, a watch to take home and we're we're tracking heart rate variability as well uh, with with those older boys. Um, Simply because with the younger boys, as I said, heart rate variability can be so varied, or heart rate profiling. So, yeah, that's a little study they're looking at at the minute. Um, It's it's only in its infancy. I think this is week four. Um, But interestingly, Kate has asked uh, some staff members to do it as well, so that I suppose we have some sort of athletic empathy for our players. Uh, This is what we're asking our players to do. Um, see can we get a little bit of buy-in um, and I know the club are looking really heavily at that going forward Um some of our young boys were away in Dubai with our first team um, who are over there on tour in this international break and I know the, our first team goalkeeper Petr Cech was running uh, mindfulness uh, sessions over there for a couple of players who have really bought into it so again something we're looking at to maybe bring in some focus and i I dare say distraction from their normal day to day because the minute the boys come into the the facility it's it's performance driven it's get your decent breakfast, get your kit on, see the physio, do your monitoring, do your warm up perform in your session, perform in your speed, perform in your gym, and there's very little time there to really switch off and think about what they're doing so I think personally because i've I've also used mindfulness myself and trying to be mindful of everything in this modern world because the pace of life is so big. But I think it might have some sort of, um, I think it will have a nice carryover for some of these boys that they actually sit back, think, clear their heads and go, okay, this is this is why we do what we do. Um, they're not just trying to flog us here and get the most out of us every day to maybe a chance to switch off. So as I said, it's it's in its infancy. It's not running that long. Uh, it's something... We're looking at um, that. I'm not involved in too heavily, but it's something I really believe in, and I think could be very useful.
0: Excellent. So, last but not least, we'll come on to the last question, and it's probably a nice one to finish off with. Biggest challenges faced as a newly qualified SNC coach, or newly newly graduated um, SNC coach, however you want to frame that. That is a fantastic question,
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. Jordan. <laughs> How long Fenton? we got? That's a fantastic question. The biggest challenge is employment for me. Um, Quality employment. It's probably for one of the fastest growing industries in sport is training conditioning. Um, As I said when I started out, there was no pathway. Um, Even six years ago, seven years ago, there was no real clear pathway. Now it's a profession you can do a master's degree in, and you can do a PhD in training conditioning. There's governing bodies, the UKSCA, the Australian governing body the american governing body just just talks of a european strength and conditioning association being set up so there's all sorts of governing bodies regulating and certifying young coaches uh for me the biggest challenge is employment um and i think it's it comes off the back of um expectation i've gone to college i've gone to university i've studied really hard i've got my first class honors i've done my master's degree i know what i'm talking about i need a job (laughs) And the jobs aren't there. Um, like, for instance, we uh, at our Arsenal, in my time with Des, we've probably interviewed for six, eight, ten different positions. And each time we're getting two, 300 uh, CVs for those positions, whether it's an internship or a full-time position. Um, and you're looking at people with Masters, UKSEA, uh, football experience, all sorts of other experiences. Uh, it's incredible. So it's really, really competitive out there. Now, what we pick when it comes when a person comes in the door is um, the person who can engage with us as uh, the peer or the boss or the interviewer, and also engage with the players and get that player to move or to buy into what they want to do. And that, for me, comes with getting coaching experience, and that doesn't have to be paid experience. And- I'm not, I'm not harping on about my Paulie's poor old days when he didn't get paid for years. <laughs> that's, uh, that's not the case at all, but you still need to get experience. You need um, to, to find a mentor. Um, I've only got, I got three emails during the week to be a mentor to some young coaches. and I'm really looking forward to that. For, so for me, the biggest challenge is employment. Um, and I suppose the biggest challenge is to meet the expectation of how much you've invested in yourself to get return on that. So, for instance, my cousin's an engineer. I spoke to him last week. He's finished his master's. He gets a pay rise straight away off the back of his master's. Um, I think uh, every other industry, the more qualifications you do or the more upskilling you do, that pays off in monetary terms or in promotion terms or along the way. Whereas in S&C, strength and conditioning, sports science, performance coaching, you're constantly upskilling. You're constantly trying to stay on the edge to make your athletes better. And that, always, that might not pay off for a long time. So it is a hard industry from that level but with that comes huge reward I think of, of making you're, you're making a human being a better version of themselves I know that sounds really corny and really sad but that's what keeps me going when you know there's bigger jobs out there in bigger industries. I suppose another challenge facing facing the um, facing the modern uh, S&C coaches that it, we are saturating uh, lots of sports now so coaches are starting to push back a little bit I think and um, because like five, six years ago, particularly in football, you wouldn't have had um, too many SNC coaches in football. Now you've a plethora of them. And I think some coaches sometimes and some other positions within the club are starting to go, okay, these boys are starting to run the program a bit here. Uh, we, we need to back off. So that that can be hard for a young person when they go into a new job uh, and twos. And so for me, build relations, get experience. Um, and uh, along the way, a position will come up. I believe there is enough positions out there for people. Uh, with regards, I suppose, advice for newly qualified coaches one, don't lie on your CV, <laughs> that happens a lot, believe it or not. Um, and two, work on your character as, as a person and engaging with people and coaching people. As I said, everyone wants to work in the professional game, everyone wants to work at the high end where you're walking out onto the Emirates Stadium and, or you're lifting an FA Cup and you can say, I had a part in developing that athlete. But the jobs, the jobs are in schools. The jobs are in the local communities where we've got obese kids. We've got um, a a P, P system that's maybe not as accurate as it should be. Um, I see lots of jobs coming up in school positions and that's where young coaches should be aiming. Build your experience there. Don't look for the professional football. Don't look for the... I had a young young man contact me last summer about um, different positions and he was saying, oh, he wants to do an internship in professional football. I was like, why? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Because he saw the glamour of it and I was like, he couldn't get one, which was the problem. But then a position came up at a university and he goes, what do you think of this? I said, fantastic. There's, a, there's your experience. You're going to look at multi-sports. You're looking at javelin tours, boxers, cyclists, swimmers. You're looking at all sorts of things. Get your experience there. And don't pigeonhole yourself into one sport because there's not enough jobs out there to be pigeonholed into one sport.
0: I'm not so sure with, if that answers
1: the question.
0: So. No, 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 absolutely. Just one thing on the back of that, with two, three, four hundred people applying for jobs at Arsenal, what gets people in the door? What gets people—the the ten people who get an interview or five people? What are you guys looking for? What what makes someone go on the yes pile and someone go on the no pile?
1: Very interesting. Yeah. Um, depending on the position, um, if it's an intern position with the younger boys, we're looking for now now almost a master's degree, but like we do look around that and um, we look for. Boys to have their UKSA or, or girls to have their UKSA or be in the middle of getting it, because uh, I believe it's a very solid organisation. So some fantastic people there assessing these 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 students, and uh, for us, it's a it's a I won't say gold standard, but it's definitely a level of very you know you're getting a proficient quality coach um, who who understands uh, the quality movements needed for SNC, uh, and then. More often than not now, because we get such demand, we, we do look for experience in football. But on top of that, quite a few sneak in the door that don't have uh, experience in football, because I didn't have experience in football originally. But um, we do look, they're mainly the criteria. And we, we ring around. Again, I will say advice for CVs and building resumes, don't lie on your CVs, don't put down references that don't exist or that, you know, um, a lot of people don't check references, but we, we do. Because, as I said, we have such a high demand, we check references. Um, so that kind of gets you in the door. Your MSE, your UKCA are equivalent. Um, experience in coaching, particularly if it's for the young players. We want to see, have you coached young players? Are you passionate about coaching young players? Or are you looking at this as a stepping stone to the next job? Um, are you Have you been first team, and now are you coming back to your development? And if so, why are you coming back to your development? So... They're the kind of questions we ask before we start saying yes or no. And along the way, you'll find, uh, we are open-minded. You will find uh, a gem in there that maybe that maybe doesn't initially stand out. Uh, we have a yes pile, a no pile, and there's something about this person's pile. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and in that something about this person's pile, I'll give you an example. Two years ago, we were interviewing for a full-time position with the 9s to 16s. And this was an ex-army cadet who had, was discharged with an injury. He had a degree, but he had a huge amount of experience working in the local community across different sports, uh, with elderly people, with all sorts. And I said, I want to talk to this man. I think there's something here. And he'd done a fantastic interview. He just didn't get it over the line for other reasons. Um, but, yeah, we can't be blind to, to the qualities of the person. But it is
0: very competitive, obviously. So. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I said I, pro- I promised you that I'd get you off for eight o'clock, and it's one minute to now. So just <laughs> a, just a, just to round up. Well, firstly, thanks for coming on for a part two. Um, a really appreciate it. Oh time no, time pleasure, you. mate. It's it's great to have another chat. But anyone that wants to reach out, what's the best place to do that? So I've had a lot of requests. Um, on true email,
1: which has been fantastic. And it is, that's the easiest way for me, my work email. Um, I'm actually, what I'm actually going to do in the coming weeks is set up kind of like a joint Skype call or something with, with people because um, I've got quite a few requests, so, which is fantastic. And I, and I want to help, I want to help as much as I can. And even if you don't agree with what I have to say, at least you'll ask the question. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> roach at arsenal.co.uk is probably the best one to get me at. P-R-O-C-H-E at arsenal.co.uk. Now, If I don't answer within two days, three days, I'm not being rude. It's um, a case of a stockpile and and working full-time in in a job. So I will try and get back to you as soon as possible. I will try and answer your questions.
0: Lovely. Happy days. Well, thank you very much for coming on for a part two again. Really appreciate your honesty. And um, we'll chat soon. Maybe a part three. My pleasure. Thanks, mate. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Hope you enjoyed part two with Poudy. So firstly, and most importantly, big thanks to all the people that put their questions on Twitter to Powdy that were included in this episode. Hopefully I did the questions justice and we were able to hit on the points that were intended through the question that was asked. So also big thanks to Poudy and the sponsors of this episode today being Hawking Dynamics, I Measure You black box fitness and the guys at acu and notre dame who are hosting their annual performance summit in june so if you're in the area or want to get into the area make sure you check out this podcast page so strengthofsigns.com and you can find all the information there i'll also put a link in the show notes as well So thanks for tuning in. Make sure you press subscribe on your chosen podcast player and I will speak to you next week.